Who Gets to Decide, a liberty-based podcast that brings a little piece of sanity to a confused society drowning in a culture of craziness. And here is your host, Seth Martin. All right. Hello, 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 and welcome, everybody, to another episode of Who Gets to Decide. This is Seth Martin, your host. Thank you for joining me this evening. Glad you were here. Happy you are listening. Well, I heard this uh, interview the other day on CNN. It's it's a little bit old, but not too old. Uh, it's an author, uh, a guy named Scott Galloway, who wrote a book called Adrift. And I thought it was an interesting conversation because um, it, this kind of reminds me of the Bernie Sanders criticism that I have. It, they're very good at uh, noticing what the problems are, but very bad at assigning the the proper causality. And to me, this is extremely important. This is, this is one of the reasons uh, I think we get so many things wrong. I mean, it, it could be that people are just incentivized to give the wrong answer. I mean, that's part of it. But it's also just kind of when you're in the matrix, so to speak, you know, you're, you're part of government, you're part of some uh, institutional type of uh, groupthink, it's hard to see out of that. It's hard to break out of that. And I thought this, uh, this interview on CNN was, was very instructive, and I thought it would be something that I could critique that might help some people kind of understand where I'm coming from. Because a lot of times it's hard, you know, I, I say things like, oh yeah, well, you know, if you get rid of the Federal Reserve, all these problems go away. And people go, yeah, how could that be? You know, the, the Federal Reserve is is just a bank, you know? I mean, uh, or, you know, if you fix the legal system, if you make it so that Congress can't pass laws that, you know, separate people from either their liberty or property, then, you know, not everybody needs to vote or you don't have to worry about crony capitalism. And and sometimes these, these connections are hard to make and there's also like a love, there's a level of disbelief, you know, I mean, I run into this all the time. I talk to people about some of these ideas. They go, I don't know, Seth. And I just don't, I just don't know about that. You know, they, they kind of question it. Right. But these, these ideas are sound. Okay. They, they're based in, um, kind of logical, uh, thinking and, uh, human action and that's what makes them, they're, they're almost axiomatic, meaning they're, uh, they're uh, self-evident. You know, that's like what Thomas Jefferson wrote in, uh, in the Declaration of, of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, meaning we don't need to do a study and, and, and get a big study, you know, uh, a data set and statistically look at certain things. Some things are self-evident. They're axiomatic. Um, I'll have to play it sometime, but Herm, Hans Hermann Hoppe lists a whole bunch of things in Democracy, the God that Failed that are axiomatic. In fact, what, I'm, what I might do before we even start this is play that. It's, it's a short list. It's maybe three or four minutes, uh, but, but it's a great example of axioms that are just true. We don't have to prove that they're true. They're just true. And, uh, and to me, a lot of these arguments that I use against what this guy is going to talk about today are axiomatic. They're, these are, these are self-evident type truths. And, um, 
anyway, I just thought it would be interesting content. It may take me more than one program to cover this because the guy covers a lot of ground and 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 it's good stuff. I mean, um, it's probably an interesting book to read. It's called Adrift by Scott Galloway. Christian, thanks. Scott Galloway, thanks again for joining us. Um, my favorite kind of book, lots of pictures, lots of graphs, lots of charts. Uh, this is called Adrift. First of all, what's the title about? Well, we're not lost, I would argue, as a country. I would argue we're adrift, and that is we can see land. I think all the problems or most of the problems that ail us are fixable, and we can see land. It's just a function of all rowing in unison and getting back to, to where we've been. So it's thought a lot about the title. I'd say we're adrift, we're a bit unmoored, unmoored if you will, but I don't think we're lost. You, know, you kind of single out a period in the early 70s that you think was one of the points where um, we kind of turned. Why then? Uh, there's, there's entire websites and studies around this, but essentially wage growth and productivity uh, were inextricably linked and wound up together pretty closely. And then something happened in the 1970s where they disarticulated and since then over the last five decades, wage growth has essentially gone flat while productivity is up and to the right. So in between those two, that delta, you have trillions of dollars in surplus value that's mostly been captured by shareholders. So essentially in the early 70s, whether it was shareholder rights, activism, or kind of an embrace of Milton Friedman economics where the shareholder kind of reigns supreme, we have optimized almost everything we do for shareholder value. And there's some benefit to that. We have uh, the best capital markets in the world. Companies have more access to more capital here. We've built amazing companies, but there's just no getting around it. If uh, minimum wage had kept pace with productivity, it'd be $23 an hour right now. So the book is called Adrift, and he argues that um, we can still see land, and uh, we've kind of, you know, what ails us can be fixed. And, you know, I, I tend to agree with this guy. I, again, he's kind of like a Bernie Sanders. He, he, he doesn't really identify the right problems. The, the guy, the interview guy, basically tees it up for him. Well, you, you know, you talk about something that happened in the 70s, what can you tell us about what happened there in the 70s? And he goes on to this, you know, this whole thing about how in the 70s, wages disconnected from productivity, which it did. Uh, there's he's right. There's websites. There's entire articles written about this. There's a lot of information about how productivity disconnected from uh, wage growth. But then he talks about he tends to blame capitalism. He, he talks about Milton Friedman and how, um, you know, uh, the capital markets and investors captured, or, or st the implication is they stole this somehow, that investors stole the wage growth from people who earn wages. And that's just, um, that's just not the case. That's not what happened. Wh who stole the wage growth was stolen from the people by government through fiat, through fiat currency, the production of money. This is why Guido Holzman has this book called The Ethics of Money Production, because it's stealing. It's, it's another type of theft. And, if, and he even says it there at the end. He says, had wage growth kept up with productivity, uh, the hourly wage would be $23 an hour or whatever he says. And, I, and I've talked about that on this program before. If, if, you, if you looked at the value of silver in 1963, for example, before we 
uh, started to uh, disconnect from the gold standard, you would find that uh, four, five quarters was about an ounce of silver, and that ounce of silver was worth about a buck fifty. That same ounce of silver uh, at the time this recording was made, uh, when this guy Scott Galloway was talking, was about twenty-five dollars an hour. So all that all that wage growth was sucked out of people's pockets by the government, by the production of money. And I just think it's interesting that he brings up capitalism and, and the implication is somehow he even says there's good things about this, you know, the allocation of capital and blah, blah, blah. And of course, people can invest 401ks and whatnot. But he basically makes it sound like investing or to have investors in corporations is, is a bad thing. And that's just completely wrong. And, um, you know, I, I just I think it's amazing that in today's day and age, people, their thinking is like this. And this guy is, is clearly an intelligent person. But this is just wrong. Your economic kind of thesis here isn't um, a radical one. It's to say that we've done well when we've invested in the middle class. And what has happened to our real middle class versus our perception? I mean, so many people, when you ask them, or do you feel middle class? They say yes. But when you actually look at what is the middle class versus what's the top and what's the bottom, what's happening to the country? So we've lost uh, several million, maybe even like 10 or 20 million people from the middle class as a cohort. It's defined by the middle three quintiles economically. But in contrast, if you look at China, they've brought a half a billion people into the middle class over the last several decades, which is arguably one of the biggest feats in mankind. And I think a decent proxy for the power and health of a nation is how robust its middle class is. And what you've seen in the U.S. is that essentially, uh, I would argue that we've just optimized for the top 1%. So the guy starts off talking about how we haven't invested in our middle class. Now, I'm not even sure what that means. I mean, what is, who's we and what, what kind of investments do you make in the middle class? You know, I, I don't even know what that means, but you hear politicians say it all the time. So really what he's talking about, it, it just sounds like talking points to me. But I would, I would go even further and say that the government, in this case, has actually disinvested in the middle class, again, by undermining their purchasing power or their standard of living. And this just goes like unrecognized by this guy. And I don't understand how people, you know, they're, it's like they don't have any kind of curiosity around this. They just kind of parrot these talking points. Now, he's right. We've, we're, we are consistently losing people in our middle class. But this is, this is a function of standard of living. I mean, if wage growth is not really going up, but the government is creating so much money that it's, it's creating price inflation and stripping purchasing power and economic power away from citizens, then, then yes, you're going to have people drop out of the quote-unquote middle class. Now, he... he you know, like a lot of these, you know, closet tyrants, they always turn to China and they say, look at China, look at all the people they brought out of poverty. Well, first of all, the people that were in China, the, the, I mean, 30 years ago, people were dirt poor in China and there's still a lot of poverty in China. So they came from a very low place I, is the first thing I would say about that. The second thing is, I'm not sure China's growth is as is, is substantial 
as the growth this country experienced between, let's say, um, 1870 and 1910. I think this country grew much faster than, than China has grown. And that's because we had a maximum amount of freedom. We had uh, a fair and honest money system. And, and people were, were allowed to innovate. Um, and we, we largely don't have that to the degree that we had back then. But, you know, China has kind of adopted this state capitalism where the state's still very involved, but they, because people, you know, are so poor that they were able to bring millions of people, just kind of like we did. We brought millions and millions of people off the farm and brought them into factories and started producing stuff for the entire world. We were producing so much stuff that we had excess stuff that we could sell to the rest of the world. And that's the way China is. But eventually, <clears throat> excuse me, these wages will equalize, you know, because we live in a global economy now. I've seen this before. I've seen where manufacturing was done in Singapore, and then Singapore got richer, and then manufacturing was moved to Vietnam, and then Vietnam's gotten richer. This moving the ball around the globe uh, to, to access low wages, this, this trick is about done, Um there's just not much more opportunity to do that. For the first time, we have a regressive tax structure. What's interesting about our tax structure that's a bit of an unknown is it's convenient to say, well, the poor and the middle class are doing really poorly and the, the rich are doing great. But it's the near rich or the workhorses that have actually been the big losers from a tax standpoint. And that is, take the couple that's making, say, between 300000 and a $1 million a year, played by the rules, great college degrees, works really hard, super successful, uh, mom's a partner in a law firm, dad's a chiropractor. They're actually playing upwards of 50, 53% in taxes now because they usually have to be in an urban area that's usually in a blue state to maintain that uh, type of income trajectory. And people don't feel sorry for them. But it's not until you make millions of dollars and then can invest and get the majority of your income from capital gains where your tax rate plummets. So kind of the 98th and 99th percentile are paying the highest tax rate. And once you get above the 99th, it drops. So we truly do have a regressive tax system. Again, I agree with him. We have a regressive tax system. But um, we've always had a regressive tax system. You know, people that work uh, by the hour or get salary up to about $170,000 a year, you got to remember they're paying uh, payroll tax too. In fact, their employer's paying some about 7% and they're paying 7%. So that's on top of their income tax. And so we've always had a regressive tax system. What he's doing is he's conflating something here. Uh, that that a lot of these guys do when they when they talk about the tax system. When you hear somebody like Bernie Sanders and says, you know, he says that he pays a lower tax rate than his secretary, that's a little bit of a sleight of hand because what what's happening there is these guys that own companies, what they essentially do is they pay themselves like a modest salary, uh, maybe maybe a quarter million dollars a year, maybe even five hundred thousand dollars a year. And they pay the top marginal rate on that on that uh, on that income, but then what they do is they either borrow against their equity that they own in their companies, or they sell stock and pay 
a capital gain tax on that, which is at a lower rate. So if I, let's say I pay myself a half a million dollars a year, but then I sell $10 million worth of stock and the capital gain is 20%. Well, then that's that 20% because it's such on such a larger number, it's going to, it's going to bring my overall tax rate closer to 20% than it will to 40 or whatever. So it's a little bit of sleight of hand that he's doing there, but it's not like, it's not like they're getting that for free. They had to sell some of their company to do that. Or they had to borrow against the value of their company, which they have to pay back. So, you know, this is a little bit nitpicky. I mean, yes, the super rich can do this and nobody else can do it. But the reality is if you own a company, you can do this. Um, so I, I think I don't think this is really the big part of the problem. Now, he does talk about what he calls the near rich. And those people are the ones paying all the taxes in the country. But so are people like Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett's paying a lot of taxes too. It's just not at a high rate, but it's a lot of money, okay? But the near rich, like he talks about, these people that have a dual income of, say, three quarters of a million dollars or even two or three million dollars, they're paying more than half of their income in income tax. And the reason is, is because there's no more deductions for that group of people. Uh, they, if they don't own a business, um, other than their mortgage, they really can't take any deductions. And even then, uh, under the Trump tax cut, they've, they've capped that at, uh, I want to say it's like $15,000 or maybe it's $25,000. So you can only deduct up to $25,000 of your mortgage interest expense. And it may be less than that, actually. So, the near rich are getting fleeced. And the reality is there's more of these, there's so many more what, what he calls near rich. I mean, we're talking about millions and millions and millions and millions of people. Okay. And so this is the fundamental problem with uh, quote unquote, raising the taxes on the rich. You're really raising them on this near rich group. And uh, this group is getting fleeced. I mean, and you know, there's only so many of them. And we, we, I, I talked about there's being, there are millions and millions and millions and millions, but there's a hundred million of, of lower income people. Okay. So eventually if you're going to collect more money for the government, you're going to have to get into the group that's the majority of the people. And that's your average people like me and you and those listening. So again, there's a lot of manipulation and talking points and um, ob obfuscation and things like that that are that are happening when you have these tax discussions and you have to be very very careful that you don't kind of fall for this one of the charts you have is uh, income growth or wage growth by income level there's a massive gap here in how the rich have seen the last 25 30 years and how their wages are going up versus everyone else yeah, I think so. Uh, what I'm trying to do with the book is there's a lot of known knowns. And I think income inequality gets a lot of warranted attention. What doesn't get as much attention is age inequality. And that is people over the age of 75 are 70% wealthier than they were several decades ago. And people under the age of 40 are 22% less wealthy. The percentage of uh, GDP, as evidenced by the wealth that people under the age of 40 command, has dropped from 19% of GDP to 9%. And a lot of people will throw up their arms, and typically it's the incumbents or people who are already rich, and claim that these are forces beyond our control, which is just not true. There's an illusion of complexity here. 
And that is, if you look at the two largest tax deductions in America, capital gains and mortgage interest, uh, who owns homes and owns stocks? People my age, who rents and who gets the majority of their income from current income and salary, young people. Social security is the largest transfer payment in the history of mankind. A trillion and a half dollars a year, mostly funded by young people, is transferred to the wealthiest generation in the history of the planet, old people. So whether it was PPP, the bailout programs where the majority of money ended up in older, uh, wealthier households, whether it's skyrocketing education, what we've seen is a concerted effort and we've made these decisions, it's not, not network effects, to transfer wealth from young people to older people. And the result is for the first time in our nation's history, a 30-year-old man or woman isn't doing as well as his or her parents were at the same age. And that's really the fundamental compact in any society, and that compact has broken down. Okay, and therefore what? I mean, here again, he does a great job of identifying a problem. But notice he doesn't, he doesn't suggest ending Social Security. I mean, this is exactly what I was just talking about. What, what makes, there's, there's a lot to unpack, actually, in this, in this whole segment that he just talked about. Uh, one is Social Security tax. I mean, if I'm a young person and we know that part of becoming wealthy in America is saving, okay? It's saving and investment. Well, how am I supposed to save if you know Social Security's taking seven percent of my income, the government's taking twenty-five percent of my income. Uh, they're also printing money like crazy, which is making my rent go up. It's making my food go up. It's making my fuel costs go up. My transportation costs go up. Everything go up. How is that person supposed to save and invest? This 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 simple fact is kind of lost on this guy Scott Galloway. He's talking about. Old, I mean, he's almost, you know, not only is there age inequality, which he's, he's right, but it's almost like he, what does he want us to do? Go out and kill a bunch of old people so that we don't have all these transfer payments? How about get rid of the transfer payments? How about get rid of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all these things that rob working people to pay for retired people? I mean, years ago I had a discussion with my wife and, and we were talking about this and, and I said, this is why you just don't ever go there. You don't, you don't start a program like social security. You don't start a program like Medicare. For one thing, it, it has, it has a force. It, it, it creates forces that act on those markets like Medicare. One of the reasons Medicare just, I mean, one of the reasons healthcare just gets more and more expensive all the time and insurance rates keep going up and up and up is there's no market forces on healthcare. The biggest payer in healthcare is Medicare. And it's on autopilot, basically. And not only that, but there's some statistic like you spend like three quarters of all your healthcare in your last five years of life or something crazy like that. So Medicare is just... You know, it's a. You could argue without without being ugly here. You could argue that if families were stuck with those costs, if you want to look at it like that, there might be some some tougher decisions being made, right? Like like maybe mom and dad live with me at my house rather than just you know automatically go to an assisted living place that. Medicare pays for, or, you know, 
you know, my 85 year old father wants a quadruple bypass and he might not even survive the surgery. And then, you know, maybe he lives another three months, but he lives it in the hospital bed, you know, things like that. Those kinds of calculations aren't being made because people just go, well, Medicare is going to pay for it and they just move on down the road. So those types of distortions have huge impacts on things like your insurance premiums, um, the cost of health care. And, and I'm not suggesting we just sit around and let people die. I'm, I'm saying as a family, if, if a family had to actually pay those costs, they might as a family make different decisions than if they just, you know, Uncle Sam's going to pay for it, so we want it, you know. And um, I, I just think this guy's analysis is, it, it's just... It's without without substance, really. And, um, yeah, I mean, there is, he's right. There's a huge transfer of wealth being, you know, that's going from young people, young, hardworking people that are trying to survive in the economy to retired people and people in assisted living homes and things like that. But what's his solution? I mean, is his solution raise taxes on the rich? I mean, who are the rich? He's already talked about the near rich and how overtaxed they are. I mean, you're going to tax them more? The super rich, they, they pay, they don't pay a high rate, but they pay bill, hundreds of billions of dollars in taxes every year. Are you going to tax them more? I mean, why isn't the, why isn't the discussion government's got to be smaller? It just, it just spends too much money. It, it, it takes too much from the economy and from productive people and, and basically spends all that on, in, in non-productive ways primarily. All right, I'd like to switch gears for just a second because earlier in the program I spoke about axioms and uh, I mentioned Hans Hermann Hoppe, which is spelled H-O-P-P-E, by the way. He's an author of many famous books, but one, maybe his most, I don't know if it's his most famous or not, but it's its called Democracy, The God That Failed. And a lot of Hans Hermann Hoppe's thinking follows something called a priori thinking or a priori theory. Now, I was talking about axioms. Axioms are kind of built up from a priori theory. So I misspoke a little bit, but essentially, a priori theory is is um, is a well. He he gives examples, okay, but this is kind of the foundation of Austrian uh, Austrian economic theory. And a good example is let's say uh, let's say you're you're building something, okay. You're gonna make it. Are you gonna make it out of steel or are you gonna make it out of wood? Are you going to make it out of gold or are you going to make it out of whatever? Okay. doesn't matter what the material is. But you're, you're, the idea about what material you would use would be based on um, what the price is, right? Well, how do we get, how do we come to prices? Well, we come to prices through human action. Well, what does that mean? That means that uh, if, if I'm going to build something out of steel, then I have to accept the fact that people that need steel more urgently are going to bid the prices up higher 
than say wood. Or if I decide to make something out of titanium, the reason the price is higher is because people that need titanium in their production more urgently, in other words, there are no, there are no exceptions, it's got to be titanium, they tend to bid those resources away from people that steel might be good enough, okay? And this is how the Austrian economic theory works. And you can apply this to everything in the economy. And so Hans-Hermann Hoppe and, and uh, uh, Mises and Murray Rothbard and people like that, th this is actually Mises um, is, is, is probably the most famous uh, maybe F.A. Hayek is more famous, but um, but Mises was kind of one of the fathers of this of this way of economic thinking. He wrote a book called uh, Human Action, um, which is a real famous book written in the twenties, and uh, and then Murray Rothbard followed that up with a book called Man, Economy, and State. And so these are the Austrian economic thinkers, and I just want to expose you a little bit to some of these examples that Hans Hermann Hoppe gives, and he gives a little run-up to the thinking and then gives the examples. A priori theory, that is, propositions which assert something about reality and can be validated independent of the outcome of any future experience. Here it suffices to present just a few examples of what is meant by a priori theory, and in particular to cite some such examples from the realm of the social sciences in order to put any possible suspicion to rest and recommend my theoretical approach as intuitively plausible and in accordance with common sense. Examples of what I mean by a priori theory are no material thing can be at two places at once. No two objects can occupy the same place. A straight line is the shortest line between two points. No two straight lines can enclose a space. Whatever object is red all over cannot be green, blue, yellow, etc. all over. Whatever object is colored is also extended. Whatever object has shape has also size. If A is a part of B and B is a part of C, then A is a part of C. 4 is 3 plus 1. 6 is 2, 33 minus 30. So the very beginning of that is probably the most important part. He says a priori theory asserts propositions that assert something about reality that is independent of any kind of future experience. And so, in other words, you, what it's saying there is you don't need to observe a bunch of data or a bunch of things happening to know what's going to happen. You can deduce it with a priori theory. And this was revolutionary, okay, at the time. And it sounds... Uh, it sounds kind of like mysticism or something, but it, it it's what it's it's the reason that communism doesn't work. Okay, without a market, and and, and by the way, uh, a priori theory, human action requires the existence of a market, because without a market, we don't know what real interest rates are. Interest rates are just another price. We don't know what price the price of anything is. Um. What, what Mises said is the price of something is subjective. And it's also decided on the margin. In other words, if I'm in the desert and you offer me a diamond or a bottle of water, even though the diamond might be worth more money, if I'm close to dying, 
I probably want the bottle of water. Now, if I, if I was, if I was toting around a thousand bottles of water, then that first bottle of water out of a thousand is not that valuable to me. It's only the, the last bottle that I value over something else that might be perceived more valuable in some other circumstances. And so this, this is called the marginal revolution. So the marginal revolution in conjunction with human action and a priori theory revolutionized the world really. And, um, but, but, you know, this is, this is part of the problem is we, we think money actually making money or using money is what makes the world go around. Or we think consumption drives the economy. No, you can't, there's no way to consume anything without first producing something. If you think about it, how can you, how can you consume without producing? And and it's very simple to prove these things. You just, you just do the, you know, 10 people on an island kind of example. And just think about how you're going to eat if, if, you're, if you're not willing to go fish first. I mean, so these are, these are fallacies that we hear on TV all the time. Oh, consumption is, you know, 80% of the economy. Or you hear these things all the time. And it leads us collectively to bad ideas. And, uh, and this guy, this Scott Galloway, clearly a smart guy. Uh, thought about a lot of these things and really looked at um, the the data. His book's full of charts, apparently. Uh, but then his prescriptions or his his reasoning for what ails us is 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 sounds more like talking points, and that's my criticism of his book. Now, uh, there's a there's quite a bit more, and I want to do uh, more of it tomorrow. He gets into education. He gets into um, some other areas that are a little bit softer. They're not quite uh, dealing with uh, money production and things like that. Uh, but he talks about uh, you know inequality and access to uh, things like college and and various things like that. So I want to I want to cover some more of that tomorrow because I think it's it's, it's really interesting because his his uh, his solutions again are not very good, but his identification of the problems are excellent, really, really good. And you know that's that's at least half of the challenge, right? Is you got to identify the problem correctly. So look, that's that's it for tonight. I want to go ahead and wrap things up. Join me again tomorrow. We'll pick up uh, the rest of Scott Galloway's book and um, try to bring in some more interesting points. Um, Maybe I can sprinkle in some more of these ideas around human action. I don't know. It's like I said, it's pretty wonky. I'd like to try to do the show without getting into some of the the wonky stuff. I want to try to just uh, talk about the application of these ideas more so than the ideas themselves, uh, because because it's a it's a little bit um, it sounds a little bit too academic, and I don't want to be academic on the program. I'm not even that academic myself, so I just think these are beautiful ideas and explain the world around us better than, than the ideas that we're told about on you know CNBC and Fox Business Channel. So join me again, uh, and we'll, we'll cover this more tomorrow night.